I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. C-13 Originals. I'm Lily Analik, and this is Once Upon a Time in the Valley, featuring Ashley West. So, we ended the last episode with Troy Matherly, Tracy's high school sweetheart, and his account of the night he spent holding her as she fell apart in her deluxe apartment with no furniture except for a Coke mirror, 48 hours before the FBI bust. In the morning, I had to go, and... She's like, no, don't go, no, no, don't go. But I was just crying all the way, driving back to Oklahoma, thinking, now what's going to happen to her? Because you're always hearing about these girls getting, you know, killed and raped or whatever in the sex industry. You know, I'm like, just what is going to happen to her next? Like, she's just spinning out of control. Deep down, she was the scared little girl that I knew, but on the outside, she was just bigger than life, and she had you know, a new name, and she had money, and she had this place, and I was just, and she was just so young still. I didn't even know who this person was anymore. Her name was Tracy now. Ashley, we titled this podcast Once Upon a Time in the Valley, and we've played around with the notion of Tracy as a variation on the theme of Little Red Riding Hood. Really, though, it wasn't until I was listening to Troy tell this story that I felt like we were in a fairy tale. The trappings are modern, obviously. A beach bum boy, a porn star girl, the sex industry, an illegal narcotic... Yet the tropes are classical. The pure-hearted young knight wants to rescue the beautiful princess from the lair of the fire-breathing dragon. But he can't. The dragon is too strong, and the princess is too hopped up on enchantments. And she walked into that lair of her own accord, and is now in so deep, the knight can't get her out, hasn't a prayer. Tracy gives an account of that same night in Underneath It All, though she focuses on the morning after. I'll read a bit of it to you. I woke up sprawled out in a pile of sweat-drenched clothing. It took me a few minutes to figure out who I was, where I was, and what I needed to do that day to survive. So I just lay there, sprawled out on the cream-colored carpet of my 2,400-square-foot apartment overlooking King Harbor. It was a gorgeous apartment, the kind you get when you make it, but anyone could tell something was a bit off. The living room was completely empty, except for the antique mirror my mother had given me years earlier now lying in the middle of the room with remnants of the previous night's coke binge on it. According to Tracy, the evening had begun at the neighborhood bar, the poop deck, and she, quote, vaguely remembered having sex with some guy but couldn't quite put it together, unquote. I'd been on a bender for two days, she writes. I was losing my mind. Troy's account is persuasive and particular. It's also tense and moving to an almost unbearable degree. You feel both pity and terror for him and Tracy. He loves her and she loves him, but there's little he can do to save her. All he can do is comfort her. And she's alternately ashamed of what she's become and proud of what she's become. And the drugs she's taking are heightening and estranging everything. It's interesting that the only appreciable difference between Troy's account and Tracy's account is Troy. Troy isn't in Tracy's. The guy in hers is a nameless, faceless stranger with whom she engages in empty, anonymous sex. And that brings us to the only other appreciable difference in their accounts, sex. In Troy's, there is none. Though what he and Tracy experience together is as intimate as it gets. Troy's account is quite exciting and dramatic, and yet I fixated on a seemingly banal detail. Tracy's address, 190th in Catalina. That's in Redondo Beach, isn't it? 
the classy part, South Redondo, overlooking King Harbor, as Tracy mentioned in her book, prime waterfront real estate. I know this because after Troy and I had lunch at Kincaid's that day, we went for a stroll along the boardwalk, what locals call the Strand, and he pointed it out to me. So Tracy ran away from home to move home. Yeah, we touched on this glancingly in episode eight, the fact that she stuck around South Bay. That was early in her adult career, though. She could have moved on, moved to Hollywood, to Sherman Oaks, but no, she didn't. Gone two and a half years and she never left. When last we checked, she was living with Tommy, her jobless ex-Marine boyfriend and possible suitcase pimp in Lawndale, which borders Redondo. Psychologically, however, Lawndale and Redondo are miles apart. Here's Tracy's childhood friend and neighbor, Mark Baxter. We're divided by one street, but there are enemies. Lawndale kills guys from Redondo. Redondo kills guys from Lawndale. We've always been at war with Lawndale. If you wanted people from Redondo to not know where you're at, go move to Lawndale. From a practical perspective, South Bay makes no sense. Pawns in the Valley, which is a hike from South Bay. And from an emotional perspective, South Bay makes even less sense. There are a lot of painful memories for her there. Maybe, though, the pain is what's keeping her in South Bay. Like, time has stopped for her at the point of trauma and she's unable to move on. Is haunted by that place, those people. And the haunting goes both ways. She hovers in and around the town, inspiring guilt and confusion in former intimates. She's both there and not, real and rumor, marvel and disgrace. Troy, for one, never has a moment's peace until he leaves fleeing to Oklahoma for college. He is, of course, forced to hear her raising hell at the poop deck because the bike shop where he works after school and on weekends is just down the street from the bar. And when he's off work, hanging out with his friends on the Strand, he's forced to see her, whizzing past him on roller skates, trailing catcalls in her wake. She could ride down the Strand and everybody, hey, 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 yeah, oh yeah. People would pull over their cars and honk and yell and scream at her all the time. And Troy isn't the only ex of Tracy's having these disturbing non-encounter encounters. Here's Mike Braschino. Someone had told me where she lived in Lawndale, and I saw the Camaro out there, I mean, the Corvette. And uh, I was like riding a bicycle, you know, I mean, I'm like riding a skateboard and she's driving a car or whatever. <laughs> you know, I was like, I didn't yell at her. I just went by and I was trying to see if that was her car, and then... I saw her in this in the city, like turning at a gas station or something, and she didn't see me really. But I mean, I just said, "Fuck, I want to buy her." She's on with her life. It's like a just a memory. And it doesn't end there. I don't know. It's weird because I, I like later on I hear like guy, you know I'd be at places and they're bragging about like being with her or whatever, and I you know I didn't even talk about it. I'd be like, "Fucking what a lame," you know. It's like, "Fuck, I'm not going to start bragging about it." I don't know, but she definitely made her mark. As far as the industry stuff or whatever, she was into it. I mean, I, I saw her a lot of other girls, you know what I mean? They just didn't make the mark. I mean, she fucking was pretty big. Naturally, guys are bragging about sleeping with her. She's famous now. Yeah, let's talk about that. Because she's a funny kind of famous. Is famous in a dark and disreputable way. A way that makes some people pretend not to know what she's famous for. So afraid are they of being implicated in her fame. Is infamous. This is Dave Ondo, then manager of the local video store, Video Mart, where Tracy and Tommy are regulars. They're dropping off some tapes. They're looking at what movies they might look tonight or tomorrow or Monday or during the week. When did you realize who she was? <laughs> so, um, right away. <laughs> I mean, if I said Farrah Fawcett, you've got a picture of Farrah Fawcett. If Farrah Fawcett walked in, would you know if that's Farrah Fawcett? I mean, you... This face is on all the boxes in the adult section over there. Um, it's, I mean, that's her. <laughs> There's no question about it. I like the Farrah Fawcett comparison. Farrah's a 70s and 80s sex symbol, and she's officially a star because of the TV show Charlie's Angels. But she's unofficially a star because of that swimsuit poster, the best-selling poster of all time. And that poster was a sensation thanks to the smile and the teeth and the feathered hair. Really, though, thanks to the erect nipples. So a pornographic image, but playing coy about it. Tracy's Farah without the false modesty. Troy and Mike are haunted by Tracy. Her mother and sisters are tormented by her. 
Mark Baxter, who dated Tracy's youngest sister, Grace, in typical North Redondo fashion, he had a girlfriend, she had a boyfriend, and they saw each other on the sly, remembers the house when the scandal broke. That was horrifying. That was one of the quietest houses on the freaking block on that street, you know, with a hardworking mom with daughters, and then all of a sudden that kind of attention is being sent over to the household. You know, I, I, re I actually do remember big fights between the sisters, actually. And I can remember going over to the house and screaming in the freaking house and then Grace coming out of the house and then us leaving. It's remarkable. At the time, Tracy would only have been a mile or so away. I know. So the story comes full circle. Starts in Redondo, ends in Redondo. And as much as Tracy's story, and Nora's story, is a story of the valley, it's a story of the beach, too. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In part two, we glossed over the financial particulars of Tracy's last adult movie, which also happens to be her one legal adult movie, Tracy, I Love You. We're going to get into those particulars now. As you already know, Tracy and her 30-something boyfriend, Stuart Dell, had formed their own production company, the Tracy Lords Company, TLC. What you don't know, they linked up with the distribution company, VIP. This company was run by Honey Weber and Cy Adler, Here's the skinny on Honey, courtesy of AVN founder Paul Fishbein. I remember Honey Weber because she was a walking, talking bullshitter. And I remember meeting with her at one of the trade shows right before, I think it was right before the Tracy scandal happened. And she had an array of movies that she was producing. They were coming out over the next two years and she was promoting them. And this one is this, and this one is this, and this is a great one. And we're doing this and this and this and this and this. And it was like, all right, whatever, you know, and there's just a lot of that. A lot of people blowing their own horn that were, you know, nothing really going on there. David Blander, who is David Jennings, produced several of Tracy's movies also had dealings with Honey. She doesn't come off much better in his recollection. Honey, spelled H-O-N-I. She had been a chorus girl when she was much younger, and, uh, you know, she was a showgirl. And when I knew her, she had bulked up quite a bit. I think she might have been mid to late 40s when um, I came in contact with her. And um, she was blonde, starting to gray a little bit. She's still cute, but uh, definitely pudgy. I met with her at her home, and it was kind of a weird experience because she had these two guys there lounging around. They looked like they were goons, and she had this big snarly dog. And Honey's partner, Cy Adler, is more of the same. Again, David Blander. Cy Adler had kind of a shady background. They, they were heavy-duty people. There was this background vibe of, don't mess with us. We're bad fuckers. Cy Adler and Honey Weber 
were what I call um, fans of the circus sex. Uh, they would try and find something that's more far out. The theory is that audiences get bored with the same old thing. Blander actually wrote a book called Skin Flicks. In it, he recalls a conversation with Honey, Honey bragging to him about Tracy Takes Tokyo, in which an octopus tentacle is inserted into the vagina of a Japanese performer. Honey claimed that she was, quote, teaching Tracy things Tracy never dreamed of. This pair sounds unsavory, right? Like, even by porn industry standards? What were Tracy and Stewart doing with these two? First of all, why these two in particular? But in general, why were Tracy and Stewart messing around with middlemen at all? David Blander asks the same question. If she wanted to have her own company, which was TLC Company, why didn't she just get investors? She would have had total control, including control over what the products would be. And why wouldn't she? David Blander answers the question. Well, I think savvy investors would want documentation of what they're getting involved in. Basics like proof of age. Now, if she was underage, she would avoid going this route. People do tend to look closer and harder when it's their money on the line. Maybe Tracy gets worried that her ID can't hold up to that kind of scrutiny. She wants a buffer. Until the buffer starts to seem like a liability. By the time Tracy and Stewart are set to make Tracy I Love You, they'd already made two movies with Honey and Sai, Beverly Hills Copulator and Tracy Takes Tokyo, both directed by Stewart under the name Stephen Cartier. Could be Tracy and Stewart are sick of Honey and Sai eating into their profits. You never know how much attention to pay to rumors, but there's a persistent one. It's even alluded to in that 1990 GQ profile of Tracy that she and Stewart tried to pull a fast one on Honey and Sai told Honey and Sai that they did go to France, but that they didn't shoot Tracy I Love You because they were too coked out. The lie went over with Honey and Sai about as well as you'd expect it to. David Blander again. They didn't buy the coke story. I imagine they threatened her pretty good. You know, you you turn that movie over to us or we're going to come after you, you know. Like I said, these were pretty heavy-duty people. Tracy went public with her age to put the partners under too much scrutiny to carry out their threats. After the whole age thing came down, and of course, um, once the light of uh, the law shined on the whole thing, well, you know, the VIP people scurried away like cockroaches when you turn on a light. And doubtless it hadn't escaped Tracy's attention that turning herself in would do more for her than just get honey and sigh off her tail. There'd be a whole host of side benefits. Every Tracy Lord's tape gone from shelves except for the one she owned, increased fame, a clean slate, etc. So David Blander's theory strikes you as credible. It does, yes. Me too. And we've gone back and forth on this point. Was the mob a serious threat to Tracy as she claimed at the Goddessman trial via her mother? Yes or no? Basically, we've settled on no. But in the last episode, Ashley, you mentioned these shadowy figures in the background of the porn business and said that Tracy might have occasionally felt menaced by them. Well, if Tracy hooked up with Honey and Sai, then she brought two of the menacing figures into the foreground. What's more, if David Blander is right and she lied to Honey and Sai, then she provoked the menacing figures as well. That would explain why she seemed so freaked out that night with Troy. It was more than just coke jitters. Yeah, she'd grifted the grifters, tangled with hard-case people, and these hard-case people really were after her. David Blander again. One producer was supposed to have hired goons to hang her by the tits. So she was in deep shit and needed to dig herself out, which is why she informed on herself. Pretty straightforward. Another reason Blander's theory holds water is because of the money issue. I don't follow. This is something that's always bothered me. If Tracy orchestrated the whole thing, went to such extreme lengths, took such extreme risks to get filthy rich, why didn't she? She sold the title to Caballero, the adult studio, for $100,000. $100,000 is nothing to sneeze at, especially in 1986 dollars, but it's hardly the score of the century. It's Caballero that scored big, since Tracy I Love You was the top seller three years running. And yes, she negotiated a royalty for herself, which was smart, but why not own the whole thing? Or at least a bigger piece? It's almost as if the money were an afterthought, 
as if what Tracy really wanted was to unload the movie, get it off her hands, so she could put it behind her and move on with her life. That's what it looks like to me. Amber Lynn also has a credible theory. She believes that there was a prior bust for the passport and for drugs. When Tracy went to Japan to make the movie before Tracy, I Love You, Tracy takes Tokyo. Here's Amber. You're talking about an 18-year-old girl, okay, who's using. She was in possession of cocaine. Not only that, but she was in possession of stolen identification. The charges on that are really big. Now, from my own experience, 20 years ago in Ventura County, just going along my life, having my party, I was arrested on the highway. They knew exactly who I was. It came right up that I was so-and-so-and-so-and-so, also known as Amber Lynn, you know, adult film star, blah, blah. They took me to jail. They took me into an isolated room. It was the most harrowing experience of my life. The police, literally, half of them wanted pictures of me. And here I was, trashed. I'd been up for four days partying. All I wanted to do was get home. And these cops are like, pull up your top and take topless tits out pictures with us. And they're doing all this stuff to me. At the same time, they got me in this room and they're going, tell us everything you know. And if you don't give us everything you know, you're going to go to prison for the rest of your life. This is a common police tactic, what they do. Anybody that's out there that's ever been arrested and busted for anything that is notable has been taken and interrogated and broken down. They want to know who you are, who you're attached to, what is attached to that, blah, 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 blah. They throw all this stuff at you to make you think they've got all this information or whatever's going on. And this girl was busted. Okay, she did certain things. She manipulated. She had fake ID. That is like felony, 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 felony. You're going to prison for the rest of your life unless you do say or be whatever we want from you right now about the people that you're involved with. Okay, broke. She broke. It's a kid. She chose herself the way I see it in that moment over anybody else. In my personal opinion, In my experience, if it would have been those pornographers sitting on the other side of the coin and they would have said, give up that girl or we're going to take you, I don't believe any one of us would not have been at risk that day for being thrown under the bus, okay? For me, Amber nails it. Even if the details are a little off, like Tracy's identification wasn't stolen, it was false. And I doubt it was in Japan on Tracy Takes Tokyo that Tracy got busted. Tracy would have only been 17 then. I bet it was on the way back from France and Tracy, I love you. Because it was on that trip that she turned 18, which is when they could really threaten her. For false identification, for drug possession, for who knows what else. For not paying her taxes. Right, tax shit, how they got Ginger Lynn. But like I was saying, even if Amber is slightly off in the details, the thrust is right, the emotion is right, I can feel it. If I've learned anything over the years from reporting, it's this. The simple, messy explanation is usually the one that bears out, not the complicated, fancy one. The complicated, fancy one in this case being that Tracy is a criminal genius prodigy, Machiavelli in stilettos, who spent almost three years casing the adult industry so that on her 18th birthday, she could elaborately fleece it. The two scenarios, Amber's and David Blander's, aren't so different, really. No, they're not. In Amber's, Tracy commits an act of pure impulsivity and desperation. In Blander's, Tracy is half a step ahead, not even a quarter of a step ahead of pure impulsivity and desperation. So she rats herself out, as the adult industry has always maintained, but only because she has no other options. But it's convincing, isn't it? It adds up. It does. There's one final scenario I want to throw out there. It comes originally from Ginger Lynn. She suggested it when she was describing how the U.S. attorney pressured her to testify against adult agent Jim South and adult producers Ronald Cantor and Rupert McNee. The U.S. attorney showed me a series of photos, and one of the (laughs) series of photos was from a film that we did, uh, Tracy and I did together. These photos of Tracy fucking people, and they've got Tracy (laughs) fucking one of the crew members. 
I don't know how she got into the business. If these people were involved with the people that were taking the photographs, knew where she was and what she was doing. So either she was in cahoots with them or it just, why would, why would anybody let it go on? Why would someone take photos continuously on different sets if they knew somebody was underage? I don't think Tracy was ratted out. I think that the whole thing was a plan from day one. That's some crazy grassy noloid conspiracy theory intrigue Ginger is talking there. She's saying that she thinks Tracy was an FBI plant, right? Yeah, but if you recall, Tracy was talking not totally dissimilar crazy grassy noloid conspiracy theory intrigue in her memoir. She didn't say that she was an FBI plant, but she did say that when the FBI guys pulled her out of bed, dragged her downtown for questioning, they told her that she was part of some Miss Sting operation and that the case on her was a few years old. She said a lot of things in that memoir. I know, and some of them weren't true. But I don't think this particular thing is outside the realm of possibility. Listen to these words of attorney John H. Weston. The FBI, which was handling the Tracy Lords case, essentially the head of the FBI was Attorney General Meese. I suppose it could be a total coincidence and Meese didn't know what was going on with the Tracy Lords case and didn't know anything about the Meese Commission report. But I don't believe in coincidences and I certainly didn't believe there. So I assumed that they were linked and that the two were handled in some respect uh, to capitalize on the maximum serendipity of the two events. And serendipity may be unfair because in that case, the Meese Commission folks, I mean, the, the uh, attorney general had the ability to control the timing of both events. I don't believe in coincidences any more than Weston does. And we have a lot of them here. Tracy makes one movie after she turns 18. That movie starts filming the day after she turns 18. She owns the rights to that movie. Coincidence, coincidence, coincidence. Like cherries on a slot machine. This is old news though, Ashley. This is why we think Tracy had to have ratted herself out. Just wait, because on the other hand, you have the government. Specifically, you have Edwin Meese. And Meese is the Attorney General of the United States, which means, as Weston points out, that the FBI essentially reports to him. And he's got this commission with his name on it that's supposed to expose pornography as a crime against nature and humanity. The report gets released. And then, mere days later, Tracy Lords, the biggest porn star in the world, is exposed as underage. More cherries on the slot machine. So what you're saying is, maybe Meese has the FBI dig into the adult industry. And the FBI is the FBI. Porn producers aren't going to be heavily scrutinizing Tracy's ID or Tracy's story because it's not in their interest to do so. And the local cops really just want to keep the adult industry in line, make sure it's not getting too egregious. The FBI figures out who Tracy really is. The question is, when did they figure it out? Because Ginger and Tracy are thinking the FBI knew for a while. Ginger even thinks Tracy and the FBI were working together. I seriously doubt Tracy and the FBI were long-term colluders. And I seriously doubt the FBI knew for a while. And I'm not speaking about idealism about the FBI, especially the FBI under Meese. I remember Meese coming up dirty in the Iran-Contra affair. He was accused of covering it up, wasn't he? Well, he wasn't charged with obstruction, but he was investigated. And that was only a few years after the Meese report. No, the reason I don't think the FBI knew about Tracy for long is because she wasn't in the Meese report. And had they known the truth about her age when they were writing the report, she surely would have been. Then how do you explain the photo the U.S. attorney showed Ginger of Tracy having sex with a crew member on set? Not just that one photo. There were multiple photos, according to Ginger, taken on multiple sets. Those photos just don't seem that incriminating to me. The FBI could have obtained them from a number of sources, including routine surveillance work. Okay, but they must have been sitting on the knowledge for at least a period, because they obviously coordinated their bust of Tracy with the dropping of the Mies report. Yes, to give the report maximum impact. It's show business, basically. Tracy's great PR for the report. I just don't think the period was long. A few days, maybe a few weeks, but not a few months and definitely not a few years. And the conclusion to be drawn is Ginger's conclusion, that nobody ratted out Tracy. And nobody ratted out Tracy because the FBI already knew. Right, making both the adult industry and Tracy the victims, in a sense. They're pawns in the government's game. That's dark but possible. This is the scenario I'm assuming that you're getting behind. It is. And you're still with Amber? Oh, yeah.
It's the side benefits you mentioned earlier, Ashley, that I think really sank Tracy with the adult industry. That she was so helped by the scandal, the adult industry so hurt, acted as gasoline to the paranoia. And then, of course, there's her subsequent maligning of it. If you can vilify something that's already considered villainous, that's what Tracy did to the adult industry. And maybe she did turn on the industry, but the industry turned on her every bit as quickly, and it could be argued even more viciously. Here's Paul Fishbein. From the outset, she was the bad guy in all of this. She duped the industry. She got the industry in trouble. She cost the industry millions of dollars. People could go to jail because of her. There was no gray area. And even the guys who were trying to sell her movies under the table after the scandal publicly would say she's the bad guy and she cost us. There was nobody that looked and said, well, you know, she was a 16-year-old kid and or 15 when she got into it and she had a bad background or bad childhood or, you know, she didn't know what she was doing. Nope, she was the bad guy and that was it. Publicly and collectively, obviously, the adult industry took a hard line on Tracy. She'd done it wrong but good and fuck her. Privately and individually, however, it was a different story. Feelings were more ambivalent. Here's adult actor Tim Connolly. Well, the industry felt like they got fucked and cheated, and um, they, she was just hated for that because she used everybody. But, you know, I felt like, you know, you're talking about she used you? Are you fucking kidding me? There were even feelings of self-recrimination. Adult actor and Tracy X, Tom Byron. There's a certain amount of regret on my part just because, I mean, they, you know, the business is for 18, 18 and over. You know, I, I didn't feel right about a you know girl that was underage. You know, that was like kind of, kind of, kind of, you know, made me feel kind of shitty. And Tom remained, remains to this day, fond of Tracy. The first movie that came out that she was in, I think there was that Not of This Earth. I think it was playing down in Hollywood at Pacific Theater, and I went down and actually saw it, watched it. Well, I mean, it wasn't that good, but you know. See, because I still kind of, I, I, I like Tracy. I always like, I still like her. You know, 40 years later, I, I'm, I'm still like, oh, go girl. And then when she did Cry Baby with John Waters, I thought that was great. I was like, cool, there, there's my girl. I've always supported her. I don't have any bad feelings about the whole thing or, or even the, you know, the underage. And, you know, because to me, she did what she had to do. You know what I mean? And the feelings of adult actor Herschel Savage were downright admiring. I remember hearing from a lot of the producers and owners of video company, we got to destroy the stuff. No, she should have said something like, I'm fucking money we're losing. I remember that. <laughs> I remember one thought that I had. Wow, she made all this money and now they'll never see those videos. That's great. I felt that. I, mean, I felt that. It's an exploitative business. I don't know what side deal she made in terms of residuals, which was unheard of anyway, you know? So, but, but to kind of like do all that stuff, make how much ever she made and then to get away with it. I kind of like that. Even Ruby Gottesman, who did hard time for selling Tracy's tapes after it was revealed she was underage, didn't blame Tracy. Not according to Paul Fishbein, who raised the subject with Ruby before Ruby died. I asked him one day, why did you do it? And he said to me, because I was greedy. <laughs> and that was his answer. Since we're questioning the casting of Tracy as adult industry heavy, we should also ask this question. Did Tracy in fact sick the IRS on fellow performers, on Harry Reams, Tom Byron, and Ginger Lynn? Harry Reams is dead, so he can't weigh in. And we know what Ginger Lynn's response is. Does a bear shit in the woods? Tom Byron, though, isn't quite as definitive. Ginger's convinced it was Tracy. I'm not so sure. I started getting investigated by the IRS in 1986, which was the same year the Tracy Lord revelation came out. Is it a coincidence or did she have something to do with it? I don't know. There's no real way to know. It's not like she had to rat us out because the government already knew about us. You know what I mean? Why would they need her to... What information, I mean, Tracy didn't have any information about my, my finances or Ginger's or, or Harry Reams' finances. 
what information could she offer the government? You know what I'm saying? The government already knew about it. Tom raises a good point. Harry, Tom and Ginger were after all porn stars. If you had even a passing familiarity with porn back then, you knew those three names. So the government, which was already all over the porn business because of the Mies Commission, didn't need to be tipped off. I understand, though, why it's something Ginger can't let go. She feels, with some justification, that the IRS only went after her because she refused to testify against members of the adult industry on Tracy's behalf. And then, when she was forced into testifying, she faked a bad memory on the stand. So she pissed off the government royally. And her 1991 run-in with the IRS was a nightmare, charged with willfully subscribing to a false tax return, the case going to trial and ending with her bled dry by legal fees and behind bars in federal prison. But I don't believe the source of the nightmare was Tracy, or even the IRS. Then what was? The adult industry. I think the trial was so awful for Ginger because until that moment, she was an innocent. On the face of it, an absurd thing to say about a porn star pushing 30. Yet it's true. It was at her trial that she discovered how dangerously sentimental was her belief that the adult industry was one big, happy, functioning, dysfunctional family. Here's Ginger on that trial. They're bringing in all of these people, trying to get them to say that, you know, I did movies for them on this date and I, they paid me cash. And there were two people that came in and stood up. And one of them was Suze Randall. Suze walked by the jury and she's pointing to me and going thumbs up. And I'm like, oh, I'm dying. You know, she's just wonderful. And Russ Hampshire was the other person. Everybody else... Not everyone that they wanted me to testify against, but uh, a lot of the people that I refused to testify against testified against me. So apart from Suze and Russ Hampshire, the founder of BCA Pictures, by the way, porn people were not stand up with Ginger. No, their sleaziness wasn't just on the outside like she'd always thought. It was through and through. They betrayed her, snitched on her when she hadn't snitched on them. In fact, the whole reason she was in trouble was because she hadn't snitched on them. Well, she was also in trouble because of drugs. She actually went to federal prison for violating her probation by failing a drug test, which wasn't Tracy's fault or the IRS's fault. No, that one's on Ginger, obviously. But she wouldn't have been on probation or taking a drug test had she not been so loyal to the adult industry. Anyway, my sense is that a lot of the anger and disappointment she was feeling toward the adult industry got redirected to Tracy, whom she already couldn't stand certainly easier to hate Tracy than your family. You said it. Okay, listeners, here comes a direct address. At the start of this project, Ashley and I approached Tracy through both her manager and her PR representative. We even tried to go through a mutual friend to let her know what we were about to do and to see if she was willing to speak to us. She politely, yet firmly, declined. Normally, that would be the kiss of death, the podcast over before it even began. Not in this case, though. We felt we didn't need to speak to Tracy because Tracy had already spoken, said what she had to say in underneath it all, and on talk shows, which I think are equally vital. My gosh, yes, the talk shows. Her early life, her sexual abuse, her troubled relationship with her mother, her father, her years and ex. These are not topics she's reluctant to address. On the contrary, whether it's 1995 and she was promoting her album 1000 Fires, which featured the song Father's Field about the rape by Ricky, or in 2003, and she was promoting her memoir. Or in 2013, and she was weighing in on rape culture in Steubenville. She's out there, and she's out there on national TV. Has discussed her past on Oprah, Larry King, Rosie O'Donnell, Whoopi Goldberg, Piers Morgan, to name but a few. She even took part in an installment of the A&E biography series. It's true that when she goes on the shows, she's mostly covering material that's in her memoir. But just hearing her speak is revealing. There's a strength in her voice, an intelligence. There is, too, an unrelenting quality to her sentences. Here she is, for example, on Larry King, discussing underneath it all. What led to writing the book? Because after 20 years it's been now since I was that 15-year-old little girl in porn movies, and as many successes as I have enjoyed, I still have this... um, title before my name, the ex-porn star thing. And well, you're always going to have that. Yeah, more than that, though, there has been so much about me that has been said and so many, quote-unquote, true Hollywood stories done that have been anything but true. I really wanted to set the record straight. I thought I deserved to do that. And also, um, you know, twofold. 
There is such a huge epidemic in this country right now with teenage prostitution and pornography that I think that the other side of the story really needs to come across and be told. She's fighting for the advantage in every exchange, isn't she? Always, never not. Fighting for control of the narrative as well. And then there's the obsessiveness of her self-presentation. And it's deep, meaning I don't think it's merely PR. She wants to control how you see her, yes. But I suspect she also wants to control how she sees herself. And I have some evidence to back this up. Here's Troy on the experience of reading underneath it all when it first came out. Her book came out. I was in a bad place in my life. I was going through a divorce with my wife. I had three kids. And I was living with this stripper from Texas, this crazy-ass stripper. I don't know why the hell or how the hell that happened. But my life was just like in chaos. So I got the book. And I was, oh, so excited to see, you know, how, how she turned out, like whatever happened to her, like, you know, and I'm reading it and I get to the part where she says I didn't give her money for the abortion and then she has to turn to porn and I just shit my pants. What the fuck? Are you kidding me? Um, and I couldn't, but I was just like in shock. Somehow I read where she's going to be at a book signing in Baltimore and my um, stepmom had just moved to Baltimore. So I wrote this letter to Nora and I sent it to my stepmom. Basically, like, you know, how are you? I hope that, you know, you've made it through all this and and I hope you're still the same person that you were, you know, back when I knew you. And, um, you know, call me. I want to talk. Let's talk. Let's catch up. And I left her my number and I sent it to my stepmom. So a couple of weeks go by. That day comes around and then that night comes around and then my phone rings. It's Nora. So, so we're talking, everything's good, everything's fine, everything. And then we didn't see eye to eye on a couple of things. She said, well, I have my diary. I always wrote everything down. I go, yeah, I remember that. And then I think, I think what happened was I had said that I would have maybe liked to have kept the baby. It would have been so cute. And I think that hit a really sore spot with her. And then it went south from there. And then that was the last time I talked to her. Evidence that Tracy possibly revises history. But Lily, it's evidence we already had. We knew that the circumstances surrounding the abortion were likely far murkier than her depiction. No, no, there's something else going on here. I want to read you a passage from underneath it all. It's from the bonus chapter in my paperback edition, and it covers the publication of the book. Tracy writes, I've done hundreds of interviews for radio, television, and print, traveling from Texas to D.C. to San Diego, Along the way, I made many store appearances. Old boyfriends and schoolmates, as well as complete strangers, showed up at my signings. My high school sweetheart read the book and gave me one of the most heartfelt apologies I've ever received. I was overwhelmed. Okay, I see. Wow. Troy's memory of this conversation and Tracy's are mismatching. Not mismatching. Opposing. Even taking into account the fact that memory is not just highly subjective, but highly emotional and that memories themselves shape-shift inside people's skulls, you still can't reconcile these two memories, which means you're forced to choose. Believe one or believe the other. Troy's memory is perhaps the more believable, if only because it and he seem so guileless. He doesn't appear to be trying to make himself look good and Tracy look bad. He's just saying what happened to the best of his recollection. And yet I think that Tracy believes hers. That's what I meant when I said she's trying to control the way she sees herself, not just the way others see her. Manufacturing circumstances is, I suspect, how she manages her psychology and pain. Because that phone conversation, at least according to Troy, is painful, intensely painful. He said this as well. I lost Nora Kuzma, and then in her place came Tracy Lords. And this is crazy. To this day, it affects my relationships and how I view women and my relationships with women. So to say it was a victimless crime is, is, is not true. <laughs> and she turns it into some warm and fuzzy, life-affirming, Tracy-affirming moment. And can you get the truth out of such a person? I don't know. Maybe, though, that would be trying to get the truth out of the wrong Tracy. Post-porn Tracy. Revisionist Tracy. The Tracy of recent or semi-recent years. But what about the Tracy who existed between 1984 and 1986, the Tracy who was very much in porn, that world's most glamorous and potent figure. What would you give to talk to her? Anything, obviously. But you don't have to give a thing, as you know. 
Because about three quarters of the way through the process of making this podcast, something was dropped in our laps. A never-before-heard taped interview Tracy did in 1985. How to convey the thrill of that moment? I'm not even going to try. Listening to that interview was just uncanny. It felt almost like we were conducting a seance, didn't it? It did. Okay, without further ado, 1985 Tracy. Here's 1985 Tracy on how she transitioned from nude modeling to porn. Well, I got a non-sexual role in a movie called What Gets Me Hot. And um, I was dating Tom Byron at the time. And uh, we just started having sex in the kitchen, and they weren't filming it. We were just having sex. And then Dick Miller brought in his little camera. And I said, you don't mind if I take a couple pictures, do you? That's all right. I don't know. It was kind of kinky, so I said, okay. And I liked it. So I've been making movies ever since. Are we going to point out that she's saying that Tom wasn't a stranger? That she wasn't tricked into porn? We're not. We're going to allow listeners to draw their own conclusions. Here's 1985 Tracy on what makes her sex scenes hotter than other female performers' sex scenes. Let me explain something to you. There's a lot of girls in the business who just get out there and lay down and let the guys fuck them. But the guys have to go through the job of getting a heart on. So I feel that, in a sense, a girl should get her heart on too. A girl should get her heart on too? It's that sexual swagger Sue's talked about. And it's a self-aware sexual swagger, a savvy sexual swagger, which is to say, she isn't just running on instinct. She's thought about this. Here's 1985 Tracy on starting her company, TLC. I found that I was doing a lot of crappy little videos and things that I was ashamed to have my name on. Whenever someone hears Tracy Lewis, I wanted to think, oh, it's going to be a good film. It's going to be. It has to be. I don't want them to think, oh, I wonder if this is another piece of shit. You know? Which I started making, I started seeing my name on a lot of pieces of shit. And I'll give you a good example. Lust in the bathroom is probably the worst movie I've ever seen. The worst. The quality in it. I could hear, me and Ginger Lynn had a scene in it. And I could hear Michael Paulson in the background saying, lick the come off each other's faces, Chrissy. Call me by my real name. I mean, I thought that was bullshit. I'm breaking in to say that Michael Phillips, the one addressing Tracy by her fake real name, was the director of Lust in the Fast Lane. Back to 1985, Tracy. What I want to do in the future is I want to open up my own production company and make the money on myself. And no one else is going to be able to get to Tracy Lewis. What are they going to do? Someone wants a box cover. They're going to have to pay me for it. Not someone else. No one's going to make money off of it anymore. I put so much into myself. Why should I write my own story, hire my own crew, get my own makeup people? And I know enough people to where I could do that very easily. We're also not going to point out that she doesn't sound like she's on drugs or under anyone's thumb, are we? Nope. Again. Letting listeners draw their own conclusions. Here's 1985 Tracy on how her porn career might actually help her mainstream career. I'm, I want to do straight stuff, I do. So I'm going actually to Europe this summer to do some straight stuff. Now, I just think it's going to be funny when everyone finds out, oh my God, there's a porno queen on my set. <laughs> it might be good for me, though, you know, for my name. She's always thinking, thinking. You can almost hear the hum of her brain. And here's 1985 Tracy on the adult industry's drug problem. I'd say it's more common with the women than it is with the men. Some of the girls get really bad head trips, and they try to find a way out. They want the money, so they show up on sets, they book things, they book themselves months and months, and they go, you know, all the time. Pretty soon they start being flaky. They don't show up on sets, and they start getting really heavily into drugs because it's, they think it's the only way out. It just makes things worse. It's interesting to hear her talk about female performers taking drugs because they feel it's the only way out. That must have been what she was feeling by the end, in 1986. And finally, here's 1985 Tracy on being of age, but looking underage. I prefer no makeup. Because I have a look like a, a young girl. I really have an innocent thing about me. But so many people just cover it up with paint. I mean, I look my age, I'm 22. And, but without my makeup, I look about 18. People just want to paint me up and make me this big grammar queen, which isn't, I don't think it doesn't sell. It doesn't sell as well. We put this, you could put a ponytail in my hair and like light pink lipstick on me. I could pass for 17. Easy. So she could pass for 17, the age she actually is. Imagine that. Next time on the finale of Once Upon a Time in the Valley. Once you have done adult, and this is my opinion, I'd love for someone to prove me differently, but I personally think that once you have done adult, 
you've got a black mark over your name. There's a slur against you. You were the girl that got naked and had sex on film. Is there anything wrong with it? No. Will mainstream think that there is? Most likely, because no one's ever really broken through huge. A few have tried. Ginger Lynn, of course, Tracy Lords, Jenna Jameson, Sasha Gray. But they didn't make it huge. They did a few little, some meaty roles. I'll give them that. They've done mainstream stuff, but no one's really broken through and been accepted. They never became like whoever the stars are these days. They never became an Angelina Jolie or uh, whoever the names are. They were always like, oh, and it's starring that porn star. And you know what? That's, I think, just the way it goes, sadly. This has been a presentation of C13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran and me, Lily Analik. Directed by Zach Levitt. Created and written by me. Produced by Ashley West. Edited and mastered by Chris Basil, Bill Schultz, Perry Crowell, and Ian Mott. Theme music and original score by Joel Goodman. Production engineering and coordination by Sean Cherry and Terrence Malangone. Field recording by Rich Berner. Artwork, marketing, and PR by Kurt Courtney, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. Once Upon a Time in the Valley is hosted by me and Ashley West. Thanks for listening. It's Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini-series is live now each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. 